Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Harvest Party Sunday. I hope that you guys are excited about coming back this afternoon and bringing some friends with you. Uh, we have been planning and we have been praying, getting ready, preparing uh, to see uh, many, many friends and hopefully many, many new friends uh, come and join us here on our campus today with their kids just to have a great time. Uh, we are hoping that as many as 2,000 people are going to be on our property this afternoon and that God will use what we have put together and what we have provided uh, just to open a lot of doors to connect with people, maybe for the very first time, and just see that that will lead to something further as we share with them the love of Jesus Christ and all that he can mean in their lives. So hope you'll be praying for that if you're not able to be here and keep us uh, in your prayers. All that's going to happen, that God will just be glorified in it. Now, you want to get your Bibles open to Acts chapter 2. If you're not already there, we're continuing our study called Sent. And last week, if you were here, you'll remember that we took our very first look at the day called Pentecost, the day when God's Holy Spirit came down on Jesus' first followers. And I told you uh, last week that Pentecost is about the birth of the church. Pentecost is about how the Holy Spirit's arrival tells us that we now live in a new era. And in that new era, we have access to God's presence and God's power. And this is in a, a new way, a way that has never been experienced before the Holy Spirit has come. Now, I, I'm not sure what you think of when you hear the word church, but it's probably pretty different than what the first century Christ followers understood when they heard the word church. When God launched the church, it was essentially a movement. It was a movement that was built around the conviction that Jesus had died as the only Savior for sinners and that God had raised him from the dead, proving that he was who he said he was, that he was the true Lord of all the earth, and that therefore all people everywhere are now commanded to repent. All people everywhere are now invited to come and join God's family, to come home to him. You see, in the New Testament, the, the Greek word for church is the word ekklesia. This is a word that literally means assembly or gathering. And it's the assembly or the gathering of people around an idea. In fact, if you break this word ekklesia down, ek is the prefix that means out of, and kaleo is the verb that means called. And so you can think of an ekklesia as an assembly of people called out around an idea. That's how it started. But over the years, something really terrible happened. People began to think of church as a place that you just go to to receive religious services. In fact, our English word church comes not from ecclesia, but from the German word kirche, which means a sacred place where you gather for religious purposes. That, that shift of thinking changed the fundamental way that people related to the church. Throughout the Middle Ages, increasingly, people in Europe would go to church and they would not even be able to understand what was being said as everything that was being communicated during the church service was spoken in Latin, which was the language they didn't speak. They went to watch a religious performance and they went to receive religious services, which they thought would provide them the forgiveness of their sins. They didn't see themselves as part of a movement. But then 500 years ago, this month actually, something awesome happened. 
God raised up some people that we now call the Reformers. And there were men and there were women like Martin Luther and others who went back to the Scriptures and they, they recovered biblical truths that had been lost. Truths like the ju- doctrine of justification by faith alone, not by faith plus works or not by works. And one of the passions that all the Reformers had was to get God's Word into the hands of God's people by translating the Bible into the languages the people actually spoke. Luther did that for the German people in Germany. In the English-speaking world, there was another man whose name was William Tyndale, and he came to the conviction that Christianity was essentially a movement, and if people were going to be devoted to the movement, then they, they really need to understand the message. And so his life's work was to produce the very first translation of the Bible into common English. When he did this, every time he came to this word ecclesia, he translated it congregation instead of church because he was trying to emphasize that the church was not a place you went to, but it was a movement you belonged to. In his day, this infuriated church leaders because it undercut their authority. And eventually, William Tyndale was tried as a heretic and he was burned at the stake. During his trial, right before he died, he said something that became very famous. He was speaking to the religious elites that were gathered all around him. And he said, if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. And as he was being burned at the stake, his last recorded words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Now, if you have ever read a copy of the King James Bible, ever held it in your hands, you have seen how God answered that prayer. You see, this is what the church is. It's an assembly built around a movement. And the danger in every age is that the church ceases to be a movement and it becomes instead an institution, an institution that provides religious services to people. Even worse, it becomes a place that people just attend. See, movements move. And if you're part of a movement, then that means you're moving. And it just raises the question we're going to be grappling with today. Are we as a church just running an institution that provides religious services? Or are we part of a movement? This question is personal. For you, is church a place you attend? A place where you just come, and in your mind, this is where you get your problems solved. In your mind, this is the place where your life gets a little bit better. Or are you part of a movement? How do you see it? Now, we already started part of Peter's first sermon, the sermon preached at Pentecost. And the very first sermon in the church's history, by the way, this is the sermon that God used to launch the movement we know as Christianity. And we're going to continue looking at it. And as we do, I want us to to dig into what Peter said. Because as we do this, we'll be able to understand better what empowers God's movement called the church. I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. We're going to read all the way through verse 41. Peter is speaking. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, 
freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, wouldn't you agree with me that, that Peter's sermon is really amazing? And maybe you noticed that it only takes about three minutes to read it. And maybe some of you are hearing that and you're thinking, well, what do you have to say to add to this? Maybe, Pastor Mike, we should just pray and we should be done. And so all God's people said, You guys aren't really certain if that was a trap or not, right? <laughs> you know, some of you are kind of thinking, well, Mike, you know, like you preached 45 minutes or longer. Peter only took three. I mean, why can't you be more like Peter? And I say to you, I say to you, you need to read the scriptures more carefully. You missed something. Did you see it? Maybe you did. It's in verse 40 because Luke writes this. He says, with many other words, he warned them. So Peter's sermon wasn't three minutes long. What we have recorded here, uh, scholars all agree, is, is a summary that Luke has recorded of Peter's sermon. And so what we're going to do today in more than three minutes is expound on Peter's summary, uh, Luke's summary of Peter's sermon. Now, again, to catch us up, last week we looked at Pentecost and we talked about the event of Pentecost, the three signs that were part of that. We said that the event led to an explanation. Remember in verse 12, the people ask, what does this mean? And so Peter stands up in response to their question, and he begins to preach. And his sermon is explaining Pentecost. Last week, we looked at the beginning of Peter's sermon, verses 14 to 21, where Peter explained that what they were witnessing is the fulfillment of a promise that God had made hundreds of years earlier through the prophet Joel. 
God was pouring out his spirit on all people. This is showing that we are now in a new era. God's presence, God's power is now available to all believers. And we saw how that is as personally present and it's, it's permanently present. We have these things. It's just an incredible thing. And I, I hope you've just been rejoicing this last week, thinking about what it means that the Holy Spirit has come and we now have God's presence and God's power available to us all the time in each and every one of our lives. See, it's a movement. And, and as Peter is explaining this movement, he's challenging the people listening to him to respond to this new era. He's challenging us today, 2,000 years later, to respond to God's movement, to join God's movement. And I've been praying this week, and I'm hoping today that maybe, maybe some of you today, maybe someone here right now, you're going to join the movement for the very first time. You're going to meet Jesus personally for the very first time. That's what Peter wanted to see happen. That's what we want to see happen. I want to show you four things this morning that that talk to us about what happens when God moves. And these are things that God is always seeking to do in our lives. The first thing is this. God always is seeking to challenge the way we think. God challenges the way we think. Now, what I want you to see, first of all, in Peter's message is that he is making a direct appeal to our minds. He begins in verse 22 by directing their attention to Jesus who Jesus is, what Jesus has done in real historical terms. It's an appeal to the mind. Now, do not forget who Peter is talking to. He's talking to people who are Jewish. They've come in from all around the world. These are people who believe that the Old Testament was God's word. They saw it as authoritative. And so what Peter does in this sermon is he points these people who assume the authority of the Hebrew scriptures to how those scriptures found fulfillment in Jesus. Uh, let me explain. He starts, Peter does, with Jesus' life and ministry. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, and again, he's pointing to a historical person, was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. And again, many who were listening to Peter, they'd been in Jerusalem during Jesus' time. Don't forget, it's only less than two months, just 50 or more days since the crucifixion. And what this probably means is that there were people there on Pentecost who had actually witnessed Jesus' miracles. Now, most scholars believe that during this pilgrimage festival, there were people coming from all over the world to be there for Passover, and they would stay all the way through Pentecost. But they also believe that many of the people who were at Pentecost actually lived in Jerusalem. They lived in the area. So therefore, they would have known about Jesus, and many of them would have actually seen his works. Peter says it. Miracles, wonders, and signs happened. And you might want to underline or circle this phrase, among you, among you. He's just telling them that God has demonstrated his power through Jesus to show, show them who Jesus was. And here's the point that Peter is making. He says to them, you saw these works. And so what are you going to do about it? How are you going to respond? What do these works that you have witnessed mean about Jesus? Is he from God or is he not? And, and I just want to tell you, God is challenging your mind today. 
Where are you today? What, what have you in your life seen Jesus do in someone else's life? Some of you have seen Jesus work in a friend's life in some way. You know that God did something and that person is now a different person. Some of you have seen the same thing in a family member's life. You know that God has done something, so what are you going to do in response? How are you going to, how are you going to take account of what God has done in their life? See, at the end of the day, every one of us needs to decide who Jesus is. Do I believe he's who he said he was or not? Now, Peter next moves to Jesus' death in verse 23. He says, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. This is a fascinating verse. We could actually spend like an entire lengthy message discussing what's going on here. I simply want you to see that in this verse, both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are clearly proclaimed. Don't bypass this. Peter says, in essence, there were three parties that were accomplices to Jesus' death. He says you, that's the Jewish people. And some of those people may have actually been there at the cross, giving their approval to Jesus' crucifixion. And then he says wicked men, or maybe more literally lawless men. These are the Romans, and the word wicked really just means uh, people who don't have the law. In other words, they're Gentiles. But don't miss the third, God himself. It was God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you just need to see and you need to grapple with. In one verse, we see God's hand at work, but at the same time, man's responsible. Both truths are affirmed. Both truths are highlighted. And it's hard for us to comprehend how both of these things can be true at the same time. But if we are going to be people who are faithful to God's word, faithful to the text, we have to embrace this. It's really all throughout the scriptures. In Acts 3, verses 15 and 18, the apostles are going to say to people, you killed the author of life, but it was foretold, the plan of God for the Christ to suffer. And then in Acts 4, the church is going to pray about how the leaders of the people had conspired against Jesus, and they were doing, those leaders, exactly what God's plan had predestined to take place. See, the Bible says it again and again. People crucified Jesus. They are responsible but at the same time, it was God's plan. Now, if this troubles you, if you think, well, it's not fair if God is in control and we just do the things that he's planned uh, to have happen, how can he hold us responsible? Let me just say this. Remember in this, the very killing of Jesus is God's plan for saving people from their sins. I would also mention this. If you take the sovereignty of God out, then you end up taking the love of God out. What about John 3, 16? Most familiar verse in the Bible. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Why did he give his son? He gave his son so that he could die and in dying so that he could save us from our sins. So we see Jesus' life, Jesus' death, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Peter's just laying it all out there. Now, the next thing we're going to look at is Jesus' resurrection. But before I get to that, I want you just to note, kind of put this on the side, an interesting pattern that we see in Peter's sermon. It'll help you uh, flow with his thinking. And we can call this pattern the thread of two things. Uh, You're going to see, as we go through this, two events ultimately highlighted. That is the resurrection and the ascension. 
And that those two events are backed up by two Old Testament scriptures, Psalm 16 and 110. Those scriptures point to two titles for Jesus, Lord and Christ. Those titles demand two responses from us, repentance, baptism. And those responses yield two benefits, great benefits to believers in Christ. That is the forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And those benefits end up separating all people into two spheres, those who reject Jesus and those who confess him as Lord. Now, I want you to keep that in mind. You're going to see these things kind of woven through as we continue uh, through the rest of this sermon. We pick up the story again in verse 24 and following. We see Jesus' resurrection. Peter says, but God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This word freeing and agony, it's a word that refers to the pain of childbirth. It's kind of this remarkable mixed metaphor. What we are seeing is, is the picture is that death, it's like death is in labor and not able to hold back its child. It's sort of like a pregnant woman cannot keep her baby within her forever, right? And all God's ladies said, amen. Amen. Yeah. So death could not hold Jesus back. That's what Peter is saying. Why? Why could death not hold Jesus back? And Peter's answer is because Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. And he turns to the scriptures to show that. Now, Keep in mind before we look at this that Jesus has said to his followers, all scripture speaks of me, points to me, testifies of me. Remember at the end of the gospel of Luke, you can read it in Luke 24, how Jesus comes to his disciples and he opens their minds to see how all of the Old Testament scriptures were pointing forward to him, his life and his work. He does this also in the first chapter of Acts. And now what is happening, Peter's doing the same thing. Peter learned his lesson well from his master. In verses 25 to 28, he quotes Old Testament text, Psalm 16, 8 through 11, this psalm where David is writing about Messiah. Now, I want you to track with Peter's flow of thought. You've got to pay attention. It's, it's fairly complex, but it'll make sense as we unfold it. Psalm 16 speaks of the Holy One, and this is Messiah. The Holy One will not have his soul abandoned to the grave. His body's not going to decay. In other words, Psalm 16 was prophesying Messiah's not going to stay in the grave. Second step in Peter's argument is this. Now, we know David is dead. We all know where his tomb is. It's a national landmark. That's what he says in verse 29. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. We know he's dead. The flow of his argument moves on. Therefore, Peter says, David had to be speaking about someone else because he's dead. He can't be talking about himself. The next step in his argument is that David is a prophet. And since he's a prophet, we know that the Messiah would not remain in the grave. And that means that David could not be talking about himself because he's still in the grave. We know he's a prophet because the Holy Spirit gave him insight into the future. And we also know, next step, that God promised David that one of his descendants would one day become the forever king, Messiah. Verse 30, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath 
that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. So track with this. David couldn't have been speaking of himself. He's speaking of someone else. He's a prophet. We know that he's going to have a son in the future who becomes forever king or Messiah. Therefore, Peter concludes, David must have been talking about the Christ, the resurrection of Jesus. The one David was referring to, the one who would not remain in the grave, the one who would not see corruption, that's Jesus. See, the key is in verse 32. Peter proclaims, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. See, he's working through this progression, and it's all about thinking. He's appealing to the mind. He goes next. The fourth area is Jesus' ascension, verses 33 to 35. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So verse 33 tells us, Peter is saying, God has exalted Jesus to his right hand. And by the way, don't miss this. You see the Trinity in verse 33. Did you notice? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all there in one verse. God has exalted Jesus to his right hand. So what is Peter saying? He's telling them, look, you saw the Holy Spirit fall on us. You heard the wind. You saw the tongues of fire. You heard the tongues that were being spoken. The Spirit being poured out is proof that Jesus has indeed been exalted to the Father's right hand. Now, kind of on the side practically for us today, don't miss that what we see here is Peter uses God's word and he uses his own personal testimony that what he has witnessed, what he's seen God do, and he relies on the witness of the Holy Spirit. And this reminds us that as we tell people about Jesus, we need all three of those things. We need God's word and we speak God's word to people as it is written here in this book. We also need to be able to share with people that God how God is working in our lives, our, our personal testimony. And in doing this, we need to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to work in people's hearts. So Peter, his argument is, since we've seen this evidence of the Spirit, we know that Jesus has ascended to the Father's right hand. And he says, if Jesus has ascended, he's kind of backing it up now, that means he was resurrected, right? Right? And that means something because we all saw him crucified and buried. And if he is resurrected, this is Peter's conclusion, he is the Christ. He is the Lord. Now, he goes on to the scripture again, quoting from Psalm 110. This is verses 34 and 35. And it says, the Lord said to my Lord, who's the first Lord? Well, that's Yahweh. That's the Father. But who's the second Lord? Is that David? Peter says David couldn't be speaking of himself because David did not ascend. He's not sitting at the Father's right hand. It must be someone else. Therefore, that one must be Messiah. Peter probably was remembering something that had happened during Jesus' ministry. You can look it up. Uh, one of the places is Mark chapter 12, where Jesus actually quotes from Psalm 110 and says it refers to himself. Jesus had already declared that. And in declaring that, if, if Jesus is ascended, if he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, that says Messiah is actually one with God. 
because sitting at the right hand of the Father means you have a place of supremacy over all creation. This means that Jesus is Lord. And so these two verses come together and say, Jesus is resurrected, Jesus has ascended, therefore Jesus is Messiah, therefore Jesus is Lord. Do you see it? Now, step back from all of this, and I understand it's kind of like a flood washing over. It's a lot of things to contemplate and think about, but I want you to see what Peter is doing in this. Peter is appealing to the mind, and he's doing it in really a brilliant way. He doesn't just tell them you're wrong. By the way, if you've ever tried to convince someone that they're wrong, have you discovered that telling them you're wrong doesn't work so well? And so Peter doesn't do that. What Peter does is he enters their belief system. He comes into their own understanding of the Old Testament scriptures and on the basis of something they already accept, premises that are already in their mind, he says to them, on the basis of what you already believe, therefore, you must believe in Jesus. And he does it using empirical evidence, things that they had seen and heard with their own eyes, their own ears. He does it using historical evidence. And he says, we have seen this. We are witnesses. We saw him risen from the dead. And what I am telling you today is this. Christianity has never been intended to do any kind of an end run around the mind. And a lot of people get mixed up here. Christianity is not primarily about feelings. Christianity is based on truth. Feelings are okay if they follow truth. Feelings are no good if they're a foundation. And so to become a Christian, we are seeing here, our minds must be changed. In fact, that's what the word repentance means. I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. Repentance means you change your mind. This is so important in our day today because our culture is a culture of feeling. Does anybody understand that? In fact, I think it's very interesting. I've heard so many people do this, and I've even found myself doing this at times. And you can kind of think about it, but there are many times when we are telling someone about something we think, and we will actually say, as we're explaining what we think, well, this is how I feel about it. We'll use that word as a substitute for thinking, because in our culture, feeling is supreme. This is not how the Bible approaches things. This is not how God's word approaches things. It begins with truth. It begins with the mind. Christianity starts by saying something has happened in history and you need to deal with it. If you will use your mind and if you will be honest with the facts, then you will see that Jesus is who he says that he is. And this also means that anything that, does, that calls itself Christianity, but tells you not to think, but focuses on how you should feel. It doesn't appeal to the mind. That is not real Christianity. Now, second thing you need to see, when God moves, secondly, he always focuses us on Jesus and his grace. The Bible teaches repeatedly again and again that salvation is not about what you do. Salvation is about what Jesus has done. And we see this in Peter's statement in verse 36 when he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And by the way, here's the thread. Two events, a resurrection and ascension, backed up by two psalms, pointing to two titles now, Lord and Christ. Peter is saying, 
uh, by the resurrection and ascension, God has vindicated Jesus' claims to be Lord and Messiah. And so now we know that what Jesus claimed is true. Now, here's how I will tell you that I approach this. Maybe this will be helpful to you. I think if a man says that he will die and then raise again, and then he does that, I'm with him. Whatever he says, I'm with him. If someone dies and then they raise again from the dead, whatever they say, I'm going that direction. What, you think that that's a good way to approach things? And that, that's what we're being told here. Um, now, maybe you've noticed and maybe you've wondered, why does Peter keep going back through his sermon to the Old Testament and looking at prophecies and looking at, at Psalms? And why does he keep concluding that every single one of them points to Jesus? We're going to see this a lot more times in the book of Acts. So I'm not going to go into detail today, but I just want to point out one of the things that the New Testament authors and preachers do, one of the things that we see when we study early church history, all the theologians and all the preachers in the early centuries of the church, they read the Old Testament Christocentrically. They read the Old Testament, and when they read it, they saw absolutely everything as pointing to Jesus. Now, a lot of us today, we read the Old Testament. We think that the Old Testament gives us nice little moral lessons for our lives. That is not how the Old Testament was read by the first Christians. According to them, Jesus is the point of every part of the Bible. Jesus is the climax of every theme of the Bible. I heard someone say one time, they believe that Jesus is the true and better version of every character in the Bible. That's why, that's why Peter points to David here. And in essence, he says Jesus is the true and better David. He takes these truths that David writes about and he says, look, David is pointing to the ultimate king. David is pointing to the ultimate David. I mean, just think about David for a, a minute. His most famous life incident, the one we think about the most, was that time when as a young shepherd boy, he, he, he went into battle against the giant, what? What was his name? Goliath, right? And he risked his life. Now, in that story, think about this. Even though none of the other Israelites risked their life, when David killed Goliath, his victory was given to the entire nation. Jesus is the true and better David because he didn't just kill a giant. He killed the giants of sin and death. And Jesus didn't just do it at the risk of his life. He did it at the cost of his life. As a result, Jesus' victory, though we have done nothing, do you see it? His victory is imputed to us. We receive his victory. Paul's going to go on in the very next book in the New Testament, the book of Romans, to say that Jesus is the true and better Adam. Do you remember? The first Adam failed the test in the Garden of Eden. As a result, in Adam, we all die. We've all inherited his fallen nature. Jesus is the true and better Adam because he passed his test in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when we believe in him, we don't die, we're made alive. Now, just in case you're wondering, that was a great place for an amen. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> Jesus himself, you can read this in the gospel, said he was the true and better Jonah. Remember we studied Jonah uh, this last summer? And Jonah, you know, Jonah was kind of messed up. And at one point he's running from God and God chases him down. He ends up getting thrown into the ocean of God's wrath so that the sailors could be saved. 
Well, Jesus himself in his ministry says, I'm actually going to do that because Jesus is the true and better Jonah who is cast out into the storm of God's wrath so that we, we could be brought in. Now, I'm highlighting these things for this reason. It's very, very easy for us as we read the Bible and see the Bible's commands and think about how we're supposed to live to find ourselves beginning to think, you know, the Bible is basically about me. It's about what I have to do to be saved, about what I have to do to get God to accept me, about what I have to do to get God to answer my prayers. But in focusing on Jesus and what he has done, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, Peter is just telling us it is not about you. It's never been about you. It never will be about you. It's always about Jesus. It's always about what Jesus has done. Jesus alone is Lord and Christ. He is just telling us right here, you can never earn favor with God. You are called simply to respond to what God's son Jesus has done, to who Jesus is. And Peter says, Jesus is Lord. See, when God launches a movement, it always focuses on Jesus. It always focuses on his grace. Third thing, when God launches a movement, he always exposes our hearts and convicts us of our sin. Now, the rest of this passage, as Peter's sermon ends in, in, in verse 36, the rest of this passage is about the response of the people. And in verse 37, it says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They responded because they were cut to the heart. That's a, that's a critical, a very important phrase. What does it mean? Well, I'm going to tell you it means two things at least. First, it means that they realized they had been wrong about Christ. They've been wrong about Christ. You know, go back and read the Gospels, and you'll see in Jesus' day, there were a lot of different theories about who he was. People had all kinds of things they wanted Jesus to be. Some people wanted him to be a prophet, a great teacher that was calling people back to religion. Some people wanted him to be a political Messiah who would come and who would deliver the nation from the oppression of the corrupt Roman Empire. Others just kind of wrote Jesus off as a fake, you know, a charlatan, a magician with these incredible charismatic powers over people. But you read the Gospels and you see Jesus would never conform to people's expectations. Jesus just kept on claiming that he was God. He kept on demanding absolute lordship over lives. Jesus forgave people's sins. You ever wonder why whenever Jesus says, I forgive your sins, people around him just went nuts? It's because the Jewish people heard that and they immediately called it for what it was, blasphemy, unless he is who he says he is. Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus let people worship him. <laughs> he said one time that if, if they didn't worship him, the rocks and the trees would cry out in praise to him. Jesus claimed to be on a rescue mission to save people, and he said he was the only way. And, you know, people heard this, and they're kind of like, Jesus, okay, we like you and all, and you, you teach us great things and all, but you need to kind of, you need to be quiet about all this God stuff, all this Lord stuff. But he wouldn't, and he didn't, and they crucified him. Peter was saying that in the resurrection, what happened is this. God overturned all their opinions about Jesus. 
And he declared, God did, that Jesus was who he said he was, Lord. And that means Jesus is God. He is not another religious prophet. Jesus is the creator of the universe. Peter says he is Christ, which means he is the only Savior. He is not one way among many. He is the only name under heaven given by which people can be saved. And you know what? Today, it's no different. Many people today have something we want Jesus to be. A lot of people want Jesus to be a great religious teacher. Some people who have interest in history think that, yeah, he is the backbone of Western morality. A lot of other people say, well, he is a good man and a great teacher. He's one of the ways to know God. You need to understand Jesus does not permit that. Jesus never permitted himself, allowed himself to be relegated to that. Jesus said, he is Lord, God's son. He is the Christ. He is the only way. Here's the question for you. Have you opened yourself up to who Jesus presents himself to be? Or are you still trying to hold on to your own preconceptions about who he is? See, the question all boils down to this. Did God resurrect Jesus? That's the issue. And Peter was proclaiming this to them. And the people listening to Peter, I think they didn't see how they could deny it. I mean, just keep in mind, as Peter stands up and Peter declares that Jesus is alive, that he's been resurrected, it's less than two months from when it happened. And it's in the very city where Jesus was killed. There are at least 3,000 people there who could have said, hey, hey, no, 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 you're, you're wrong about this. We can take you to the tomb. We know where he is buried. His body's still there, but no one did. No one did. See, they could not dismiss the apostles as liars. And we might look back on it from this vantage point and think, well, sure, maybe they did it to gain something, but what did they gain? Their confession of Jesus didn't usher them into a life of money and power. We know from history that every single one of the apostles would end up dying a martyr's death, but all of them proclaimed to the end, Jesus is Lord and Jesus is alive. We saw him. See, their witness had made them conclude uh, that Jesus was who he said he was. And Jesus was exactly who he said he was. So once again, what about you? Have you opened yourself up to who Jesus presents himself to be? Have you been cut to the heart? Here's the second reason they were cut to the heart. They realized that they were responsible for the death of Jesus. There's a couple different times, maybe you notice in verse 23, verse 36, where, where Peter points straight at the crowd and he says to them, you killed him. And if you look at the Greek text, it's emphatic. I mean, he's point, punching his fingers into their chest. He's making it clear, you did this. Now, some of you may know over the years, this verse has been used in an anti-Semitic way to, to say that it was the Jews who killed Jesus and that they, as a people, should be held responsible for it. I want to tell you today, that is not true. That is a very poor and inaccurate and false understanding of what Peter is saying. Let me tell you what he means. There's two things I'll point out. When Peter says you killed him, first of all, he was speaking globally. He was speaking to all of us. Think about it. Not, not everyone that was there when Peter preached had been directly involved in Christ's crucifixion. But he looks at all of them. 
every single one of them. And he says, you, you killed him. In verse 39, Peter's going to say that this is about you and it's about your children and it's about the people who are far off. In other words, people in countries around the world that haven't even been born yet. This was not about any particular group of Jews in Jerusalem. It was about people, all people. It was about you. It was about me. Second, when Peter says you killed him, he was not only speaking globally, he was speaking personally because Peter knew that he himself had a part in it. Do you remember the story? On the night when Jesus was crucified, Peter was there. Peter was challenged. Peter denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. In Luke's gospel, Luke records a very important little detail. It's in Luke twenty-two sixty-two. After the third denial, the third time Peter denied Christ, Luke says, at that moment, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned, and he looked at Peter. Jesus turned around, and he looked at Peter, his disciple, his friend. You need to think about what Peter would have seen. Jesus had been beaten and whipped. At this point, his face would have been purple and bruised disfigured. His eyes may have been mostly swollen shut. There would have been blood and spit dripping down his face. And Jesus turns and he looks at Peter and and Peter realizes what he has done. In that moment, Peter sees that Jesus was beaten for his betrayal. And Luke says he was cut to the heart and he went outside and he wept bitterly. You see, those who were listening to Peter they came to the exact same conclusion Peter did. They said, we did this because the Bible says that Jesus died for our sin. Jesus died for your sin. Jesus died for my sin. That's what the prophet Isaiah had spoken about in Isaiah 53 when he said he was bruised for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds you are healed. You see, you are truly cut to the heart when you realize that it was your sin that did this. When you see Jesus looking at you and you realize it was your rebellion, your own particular pattern of sin, whatever that is in your own particular life, your lying, your cheating, your selfishness, your pride, your refusal to do things God's way, your lust, your anger, whatever it is, that's why he died. You know, before you are cut to the heart, you think of sin as breaking God's rules. After you're cut, you see sin as breaking God's heart. And that's what happened with Peter. Peter saw that that Jesus had come in love. He's sent by the Father to gather and bring home rebellious children. But those children had said, no, I don't trust you. No, I'd rather be in charge of my own life. We resisted Jesus, and when he wouldn't be resisted, we we killed him. I want to ask you today, has this realization happened for you? Have you been cut? See, it has to happen to every one of us. You, You cannot receive Jesus by virtue of your parents' faith. You cannot receive Jesus by virtue of your spouse's faith. You yourself have to come to God and realize that it was your sin. You have to be cut in your heart. Your sin 
put Jesus on the cross, you need to be forgiven. Fourth thing that I want us to see, when God moves, he always calls us to change our lives forever. Remember, I've been saying that movement is about life change. And so we have two events and two scriptures and two titles. And those titles require two responses. And those responses are repentance and baptism. Verses 38 and 39, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. What does it mean to make Jesus your Lord? You don't believe that he's just a prophet. You don't believe he's just a good teacher or that he had some good ideas. You believe that he is who he said he is, son of God, God himself, God to be worshiped, Messiah the Lord to whom you owe everything and whom therefore you must give absolute allegiance, absolute obedience. You submit your life to him. Look at those two responses. The first is repentance. Let me characterize it this way. We change our minds about God. And again, I've mentioned it. The word in Greek means of change in mind. Repentance is more than just a resolve to do better. It is a whole new attitude toward God. When you repent, you see that your entire attitude toward God has been wrong. You've resisted him as an adversary, but now you see him as a loving father. And when that happens, friends, when that happens, it changes your attitude towards sin. As I said earlier, you know, you go from seeing uh, sin as breaking God's rules to you see sin as breaking God's heart. Uh, I read a story this week. It's kind of a legend. It comes from a town in Wales, England. The town's name is Bedgalert, and that, uh, that name just literally means the grave of Galert. And every year, uh, thousands of people visit the grave of Galert. This comes from a story uh, of a 13th century prince. His name was Llewellyn. I kind of think that's a weird name to be a prince, but that's what they did back then. And he comes home one day, and he finds his faithful hound, this huge dog whose name was Galert, and he's covered in blood, his jaw, his body just covered in blood, and he's panting and breathing heavily. And the prince looks around his home for his infant son, and he sees that the crib is empty, and there's blood everywhere. He concludes that his dog killed his son, and so he pulls out his sword, and he kills his faithful dog, Galert. After he finishes, just a few seconds later, his son toddles back into the room. He's covered with blood. The prince is confused, and he looks around, and he finds very quickly the body of this enormous wolf that had come into the house to attack his son. His dog, Galert, hadn't killed his son. His dog had saved his son, and he killed him. Now, we hear a story like that, and we feel some pity, and maybe we feel a little anger about what happened to the dog. But do you realize this is the Son of God slain for us for our sins? We didn't know he came as our Savior. Not only do we respond with repentance, we respond by surrendering our lives. And baptism is the sign of this. You see, truly coming to Jesus means you recognize that he is absolute Lord and you recognize that you have been living in rebellion against him. C.S. Lewis once said, we don't come to God as bad people trying to become better people. We come as rebels 
to lay down our arms. And this is, again, something you either have done it or you haven't. And baptism is the sign that God commands us to undertake to show that we have. We are to be baptized in obedience to his command. Now, if you respond in these two ways, there are those two great benefits that come to you. Forgiveness of sin, gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, a life cleansed from our past. Isn't that amazing? And then a life with power for the present and for the future through the Holy Spirit. And then the final two things, those two benefits lead to two groups of people, two spheres. We see this in verses 40 and 41. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. You see, one sphere of people rejects Christ and remains in this corrupt generation. Ephesians 2 says that all of us before Christ, we're, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But then some put their faith in Christ. And on the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 who did that and were added to their number. You see, the world isn't neutral. You cannot stand in the middle. No one can. We are either in rebellion against God and his wrath is upon us, or we have repented and we have surrendered. We have trusted in Jesus. We have given him our lives for obedience, for his lordship over us. That is the movement that God has launched. And the question that I want to leave us with this morning is, are we part of this movement? You become part of this movement when you do what those 3,000 people did on that day. You trust Christ. You surrender to him. You turn from your sins and you turn to him in faith. And you are part of this movement when you are seeking to let others know how they can do what God has done in your life, how they can turn how they can surrender, how they can come to know life, the life that only comes from Jesus. I want to ask you now if you would bow your heads and we're going to pray together. Our Father, we give you thanks for your word that teaches us. We give you thanks for the truth that we see. And Lord, help it to change our thinking, help it to change our lives. But most of all, Lord, will we today uh, just be burdened to see others come to know what you have in your grace revealed to us. We give you thanks for Jesus. We give you thanks for the spirit that has been poured out. We give you thanks for all that you are to us, Father. And we ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. And all God's people together said,